Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. The Outpouring is a vibrant, Christ-centered church in sunny Orlando, Florida. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message by Pastor John Daniels. Acts chapter 4, verse 31 through 37 is where we'll land today. Acts chapter 4, verses 31 through 37. It says this, when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God boldly. Now, the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. For there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as any had need. Verse 36 says, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus by birth, the one the apostles called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Let us pray. Father, we Thank you now today, God, that we can gather together as a group of believers to study your word, God. I, I pray and thank you, Father, that you've allowed us to come together and worship, God. I pray that today that we will be edified through your word, that, that we would grow in our faith today and grow in our understanding of what it is that you've called us to, God, the, the family of God that you've brought us into, Father. I pray that today things will be made clear for us, God. I pray that after today, God, that we would um, live even better than we have before with the knowledge that we've obtained today, God. And so, Father, I pray that we're not just hearers of the word of God, but I pray that we are doers of the word of God. And so, Father, let us get out of our uncomfortable places, God, and, and let us step into what you have called us to. And so, Father, I just pray today, ultimately, Lord, that your son Jesus would be uh, glorified, that we would see him today, God, that he will be made known today, God, that our hearts would be drawn to Christ today, and that love for Christ would be expressed in love for others. And so, Father, we thank you for everything that's going to be said and done today, Lord. I thank you what you're going to do in the lives of your people, God. Lord, let the word of God fall on fertile soil today, God, so that we would grow, Father, that, that, that we would flourish and, and blossom as a people of God. And so, Father, we thank you, we praise you, we honor you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And the people of God said amen. You may be seated. My sermon title today is Commitment to Community. Commitment to community. I want to read you the words of, of Dietrich Bonhoeffer from his book, Life Together. And he says this in an excerpt from that book, that our community with one another consists solely in what Christ has done for us. This is true not merely at the beginning, as though in the course of time something else were to be added to our community, it remains so for all the future and to all eternity. 
I have community with others and I shall continue to have it only through Jesus Christ. The more genuine and the deeper our community becomes, the more will everything else between us recede. The more clearly and purely will Jesus Christ and his work become the one and only thing that is vital between us. We have one another only through Christ, but through Christ we do have one another holy and for eternity. And what he is communicating in this particular excerpt from the book Life Together is that the reason that we have community, the, the reason that we are together as a body of believers is because we share this one common thing and that is what God has done for us through his son Jesus. Our salvation, Jesus' finished work on the cross is what has all of us together in uh, uh, the body and the family of God. We are all uh, equal at the foot of the cross. All of us bear the name of Jesus Christ because of what he did for us at Calvary. This is what brings us together. Jesus is what makes us the church. We are, we are what the scriptures call the body of Christ, and Jesus is the head of that body called the church. However, we live in a day and time where it seems to be somewhat of an uneasiness or a shyness to say that you are a part of a church. It is no longer cool. It is no longer acceptable. It is no longer culturally relevant to be a part of a church, to be a part of a body of believers. Oftentimes, if you tell someone that you go to church or that you are a member of a church, it is met with some form of contempt or derision because you are a part of a body of believers. Part of it, though, I understand for a litany of reasons because the, because the church is compromised um, of imperfect beings now and throughout history, and we have at times done our best to undermine our own credibility. I, I make no bones about it. I am an apologist for the local church. However, I do know that the church has issues. I do know that the church has done some grave things throughout history. I understand all of that. However, 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 what man has done does not take away from what God has determined. However, it does not change the fact that the church is and always has been God's plan A for the salvation of the world. It is not not in a political party. It is not in the right president. It is not because you vote red or because you vote blue or because you're rich or poor. God's plan A for the world comes through the church. For as many blemishes that the church has, the imperfect church is the same one that Christ shed his blood and died for. This imperfect church is also the same one that he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. If God said something ain't going to come against it, then nothing will be able to come against it. So the good news for you and I is, is that we are part of this thing that nothing can prevail against it. That means that we are protected because we are in the ones, are in the hands of the one who is protecting his body, which is the church. And so there is nothing more indestructible, nothing more eternal, nothing more redemptive, nothing more salvific, and nothing more beautiful than the bride of Christ, which he calls the church. 
And so this is what Jesus has said about his bride, that nothing, that not even hell can overcome the church. And I know it sounds tempting in our day and age to say that we love Jesus and not the church. But I have a question to pose to our generation. How can a person say that they belong to him and hate the very thing that he loves and has died for? And I want to let you know today that you can't have Jesus and not have the church. L let me say that again to the people in the back that didn't hear me the first time. You can't have Jesus and not have the church. As Sam Alberry said and put so well, to neglect the church is to neglect Jesus. For all the apprehension, the trepidation, the worry, the angst about, about, about being a member of a church. If you are a believer, you bear the name of Christ, and it is your responsibility to be in a community of believers. God has designed our salvation and our sanctification so that we are doing this together. I've said this before, and I'll say it again, and I'll say it forevermore, that as long as I have breath in my lungs, your salvation is a community project. Shameless plug for life groups. In the book, Uncomfortable, Brett McCracken states, at some point, we just have to commit, recognizing that we aren't perfectly compatible, but we are perfectly covered by the grace of God and perfectly empowered by the Holy Spirit to make it work. That we can make this thing work together. And I want to instill some confidence in our generation today that you don't have to be ashamed of being a member of the church. We hold the most valuable resource. We have the best news possible. I, I was mean, talking to a couple guys yesterday. And they, they, they mentioned how, you know, you turn on a certain news channel and it's always breaking news. Every second is breaking news. Something that happened 10 weeks ago is always breaking news running across the screen. But we don't have just breaking news. We have good news. Our breaking news is good news. And the world right now doesn't need another breaking news. What the world needs right now is good news. And the breaking news of the good news is that the kingdom has come. It was the Apostle Paul who said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. We shall not be ashamed of the gospel. We shall not be ashamed of the church. Paul said that God gave us this message. He gave us this message. This is his wisdom. This is so God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church. We have a responsibility as believers, as a church, to tell the world about the good news that we have found. Even now, in our present climate, God is working through the church to reconcile all things to himself. The church has an awesome, wonderful privilege and responsibility to tell the world about God, to demonstrate what life in Christ looks like and, and to invite them into the kingdom of God. But then I started asking myself a question, how can we do that when we are oftentimes more faithful advocates for political parties and candidates and brands and celebrities than we are about the kingdom of God? And in this day and climbing our political and social rhetoric, 
Our self-absorption uh, further proves the point that we oftentimes are no different than the world that God has intentionally set us apart from. But we have been called to speak and live in such a way that our life together becomes attractive to those that stand on the outside looking in, that they can see in their loneliness, that they can see in their isolation, that they can see in their fake social media friendness, followingness, that, that there is a true and genuine community where people are loving each other, where people are forgiving each other, where people are bearing with one another, where people are helping one another, where people are speaking life into one another, where people are there for each other. The world needs to see that, that life together is, a God, is God's good and beautiful plan for humanity. The church is supposed to be attractive. And here today we find a passage of scripture that is eerily similar to something that was stated just two chapters before it. And what we see in this passage today is a second outpouring of the Holy Spirit. What we look at today and what we see in chapter four is a people that have made a commitment to community. We'll see what those factors are that set them apart. And that would be wise for us to imitate so that we can be the people of God in the church that God has called us to be. A refresher course, that, which most of you guys don't need because you've been doing the five by five by five reading plan. You read this this week in the book of Acts. Somebody should have said amen. We see in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, the life together, the picture of it, the, that the body of believers together was not a one-off event or a one-day-of-the-week event. They, they were meeting in the temple and meeting in each other's homes. The, the scriptures tell us that they were devoted, that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, that they were devoted to fellowship, that they were devoted to the breaking of prayers, bread, that they were devoted to the prayers, that they were committed to it. They, they, were, they were exhibiting a stick to to the things of God. They, they devoted themselves to that thing. Their, their attitude, it tells us, was one of joy and sincerity, not because life was easy, but because they shared in the goodness of God together. Their life was consumed by their love of Christ. Then before I get to everything that is in our text, I do want to reiterate something that we do see in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, that was necessary and essential to the life of the church, and that was this, prayer. Prayer was essential to the life of the church. Their commitment to prayer was a commitment to trust in the sovereignty of God in all circumstances. You have to understand that. They are living uh, in the midst of persecution, and they are praying, praying because they are dependent upon God, but also praying because they are entrusting themselves to the sovereignty of God that if we're going to follow God, we, we are going to lay everything aside, and whatever happens to us happens to us. We trust God in the midst of it. We trust trust God and we are following him regardless of what it cost us to follow him. They were united in what they were praying for and prayer was primary in the presence of persecution. I sound like a Baptist preacher. <laughs> prayer was primary 
in the presence of persecution. They, I want you to notice something about them. They were not asking God to take away the persecution. They didn't ask God to take them out of the persecution. They actually were praying that God would make them bolder. That, that God would give them the strength to say what needed to be said. That, that God would, 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 would embolden them to continue to speak the truth no matter the cost. They did not pray that God remove persecution. They prayed that God would make them bolder in the midst of persecution. When was the last time you prayed that God make me bold? God make me bold. And we see God's power operating through their prayers. And their prayer is what they were doing when the Spirit came in chapter 2. Their prayer this time, even in chapter 4, the, the Spirit comes in response to their praying. And, and we need these types of prayers if we're going to do and be that all uh, our God has saved us to be because oftentimes prayer precedes mission. Prayer precedes mission. I cannot help but to notice that at the end of both chapters 2 and chapters 4 in the book of Acts, when Luke describes the characteristics of the church, it comes on the heels of boldness in the presence of persecution. At the end of chapter 2 and at the end of chapter 4, these are bookends, they look, they look very similar, but, but both the end of chapter 2 and the end of chapter 4 comes on the heels of persecution. Peter goes and Peter preaches. The Spirit comes, Peter stands up in Acts chapter 2, Holy Spirit comes, they're filled with the Holy Spirit, he preaches a message telling them what has happened today is the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2 when he said that the Spirit will come and he poured his Spirit on all flesh. We see the fulfillment of that at Pentecost. The men said, no, these people are speaking in tongues, they sound a little crazy, they must be drunk. Peter says, no, nah, these guys ain't drunk. It's too early in the day for this. These, these people are not those kind of drunkards, they don't drink as soon as they wake up in the morning. These people are filled with the Holy Spirit. He stands up. He preaches a convicting message. He preaches a convicting message about the coming of the Holy Spirit and how what is happening now is fulfilling what was spoken in the Old Testament. He preaches Christ from the Old Testament. He then calls the people repentance, and thousands of souls get added to the church based off of this bold message that he preaches. We move on uh, uh, to chapter 3, and we see them after they show us that they, they've been together in the community. We see in chapter 3 the healing of a disabled man who is 40 years old. He's 40 years old. He's disabled. And Peter and John heal this man. The people are amazed and awestruck by what has happened to this 40-year-old man that they've seen that's been disabled for a long time. They heal him. All of a sudden, it draws the attention of the people, but it also draws the attention of the Jewish leaders. And, and Peter and John now become arrested. They get arrested for what they have been preaching. They, they stand and before the Jewish leadership, Peter, bold as he can be, prays for the Holy Spirit, Spirit fills him, he gets bold, he preaches Christ through the, through the Old Testament to the Jewish leaders, risking his life. They could kill him for doing this. He does it anyway. They don't keep him in jail. They let him go. He goes back and meets with the rest of the disciples. They pray again that God would fill them and make them bold. And then what do we see? Acts chapter 4, verses 31 through 37, and it shows us the community again. It's almost like they go out into the world, preach the good news, and come back and do life together. You see this pattern there. And so this is a beautiful pattern that we should emulate, that we should emulate. And prayer is essential to doing this. 
But unfortunately, unfortunately, in our present climate, we see too many divisions in the church itself. Divisions as it relates to secondary issues of theology. But more upsetting than that is that we see division in the church regarding cultural issues. And people are taking spiritual positions based on political affiliation. And we have exalted culture over Christ when we should live and speak in such a way that demonstrates Christ over culture because Christ transforms culture. And our allegiance to the kingdom of God must supersede and take precedence over all other allegiances. And this is the thing that we must all agree upon. He has called us all to be salt and light. He has called us to conduct ourselves honorably among the unbelieving world. Why, why would he set us apart? Here's why. Because our being set apart, our, our standing out, our being different has missional value. We, we mirror God's character and his deeds so that we can sanctify the world and show them what Christ looks like. Th this is something that the church must agree on. And so this text highlights the necessity of the church being unified and being on one accord. I'm still a joke that I heard from a preacher friend of mine. He says that if the church drove a car, it would be a Honda because we must all be on one accord. <laughs> I was like, yes, that's awesome. It's a good dad joke. And it says in verse 32, now the entire group of those who believe were one heart and one mind. This is real friendship. They're united at the deepest part of their being. They, they shared the same basic fundamental focus and thought about many of the same Things. They, they are living into the reality that they are actually brothers and sisters in the Lord. This is what a church is, a family of believers that are united through the spirit of Christ. They do not just see each other as church members that are loosely connected on Sunday morning. Rather, they know the reality that they share the same heavenly father, that they know they've been baptized by the same spirit. They know that their salvation has been purchased by the same blood. Therefore, they realize that they are one. And so what I want to do right now is take a few moments to look at some scriptures in the New Testament that highlights the necessity of the church being united. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 10 says this, uh, uh, now I urge you, Brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus, that all of you agree in what you say, that there will be no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. Paul stated this at the beginning of his letter to the church at Corinth, who had issues of being united. He further goes on to say in the same chapter, verse 13, he says, uh, is Christ divided. He asked this fundamental question, is Christ divided? If Christ is not divided, then why are you? Th th then why are you? Why, why, why are you divided if Christ is not? Why, why are you uh, uh, tearing apart Christ's body? If Christ calls us to be united, if Father, Son, Holy Spirit is on the same accord and united, then we should strive to be the same thing. This is what Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, verse 21. Jesus prayed this prayer, may they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. He's literally saying that their togetherness is a picture of our relationship and it further authenticates 
authenticates that I am who I said I am, and people can see that by their unity. This is God's will for the church that we be united as one. This is God's will for every believer to be connected with other believers doing life together. Our unity is not just for us to hang out with each other and kick it, but our unity and togetherness is evangelistic and missional in nature. There are life and death implications in our unity. There are life and death implications in our unity. And nothing is more unattractive and repulsive than when the church is divided because Christ never intended for his body to be divided. But not only do we have cultural division in the church, political division in the church, oftentimes we are divided over the minutia within the context of the local body as it relates to who's important, who's not important, who does this, who does this thing. Well, I think I should be doing this, or I think I should be doing that. Well, I'm better suited here. No, I'm better suited there. No, I think I should be doing this. No, I think I should be doing that. And let me tell you something graciously and lovingly. Your preference is not the church's priority. Your preference is not the church's priority. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a church kid. I grew up in the church. Like I, I, I'm, I'm a church kid. And, and I'm not, I'm not going to lie. I didn't completely get it when I was growing up, man. But I, I just remember the old school saints in a small church, uh, they, they were so committed to doing whatever they were asked to do. that They came to church, church with a spirit of joy. It's like they had been waiting for it the whole week. I remember growing up Saturday night getting ready for church Sunday was a whole event. I can still smell the being ironed over the clothes as we get ready, get ready to prepare for what we're going to wear on Sunday morning. I remember pulling out the church outfit, getting ready to go to church in the morning. I remember what it was like to drive to church uh, early in the morning to go to something called Sunday school. You looking at your watch talking about when is this going to be over? You look at your watch when I was growing up, if you want to, it's going to be over tomorrow. <laughs> Start today in tomorrow. In tomorrow. But, but the saints were so excited that the saints were excited to come and just be an usher. That the saints were excited just to sing back, back, back in the back, back, background in, in, in the church choir. They were, they were excited, knowing they couldn't sing, but you couldn't tell them nothing. They sung with gladness and with joy. The, the deacons were excited to just say amen during the sermon. I promise I'm going to just transport in some deacons from all over the church, all, all over the city of Orlando. Give me some all-star deacons just to say something when y'all being quiet. That was their task, just to, just to back up the preacher. Amen. Say it, Reverend. Say it, doctor. They, they said whatever. It didn't matter what you said. It was a can of paint. Amen, Reverend. That, that, was, that, that was good. They looked forward to it. I remember the old people's choir. They put them on like fifth Sunday. <laughs> fifth Sunday. Sis, we all, y'all, fifth Sunday, sis. I, I, but they were so excited. The, the ushers were excited to march in from the back of the church. I'm, I'm implementing that next Sunday. Usher's coming in from the back during praise and worship. 
The choir is march, praise team is marching in from the back next Sunday. But they were excited. But now we can't get excited if we're not doing what we think we should be doing. And so we have to ask the question, not how can the church serve me, but rather how can I serve it? What if the question is no longer where can I be that is the good and perfect fit? But wherever you see need for me, let me do that. Well, I'm looking for a church where they can just, I need my, my gifts to be used best in the church. Commitment matters more than compatibility. And if we all have the same mindset and the same goal, which is that Christ be glorified in everything, we will see what the psalmist said, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. My dear brother, Pastor Michael Aitchison said this, unity is not a tertiary matter. It's not something we put on the back burner, but it is primary to the church's existence. It is not a tertiary matter. It is not something that we get to when we get to. It must be of first importance for us. When we are united, it is beautiful and attractive, but most importantly, it glorifies God. Look at what Paul said in Romans 15 and 5. Paul said this, Now may the God who gives endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another according to Christ Jesus so that you may glorify the God, the Father, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with one mind and one voice. And you know what happened to this church when they were united? The grace of God was evident. The grace of God was evident because of their unity. The grace of God was literally poured out on this church. There was great power in their midst. Miraculous things were happening. Signs and wonders were being done to attest to the message of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 2, it mentions favor with the people. It says that they had favor with the people. But here in chapter 4, it talks about the grace of God, which is the favor of God. And as apostles were teaching the gospel, it says great grace was on them. In Acts chapter 2, they had favor with the people. In Acts chapter 4, we see they have favor with God. Unity brings God's favor. So, not only does it bring God's favor, but it compels them to something. It compels them to an open-handed, Christ-centered generosity towards other believers. They were not just committed in terms of getting along and not stirring the pot, but they were committed to doing life together and sharing all things together. And, and, and I want to look and pause here to the main primary point of the text, the open-handedness and the generosity of the people of God. L look at what it says um, at the end of verse 32 through 37. And no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. For there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as any had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus by birth, the one the apostles called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, let me tell you why they needed to do this, why it was a necessity. Christianity is just now starting. 
and, and, and the believers are in Jerusalem, and some of them have relocated here because they can't go back home. Some of them don't have churches where they came from, and they were so committed and connected to the church that they wouldn't leave to go back where they were from. And sometimes staying in your local body is more valuable to your soul than going back to where it's comfortable. Some had lost jobs and income because they chose to follow Jesus. For some employers, I mean, it, it, they feared hollow, hiring followers of Jesus because persecution could come along with employing a Jesus follower. Some, some of these people were disowned by their families and left isolated, so all the family they had was the church. This happens often because some of us are closer to people in the church than we are to our own family members. Adding the fact that at the time in Jerusalem, there was, there was not, it was not a wealthy city. There was a famine that had came in and destroyed all of the city's resources. So people were without. And we see a church that lives out the transformed lives. Jesus redeemed them to live. And we see this in the way that they express their tangible love for one another. And some people will use this passage to, to promote communism. But this passage ain't about communism. It's about community. The people don't have to give all of their stuff. The people are voluntarily, willingly giving up so that others could have what they needed. This is an example of sacrificial generosity. They are voluntarily meeting one another's needs. They are gradually, over time, liquidating and selling stuff as the needs in the congregation would arise, which lets us know that not everybody in the church was poor. Not everybody was poor because other, you'll see throughout history, they were meeting in people's houses. So not everybody is selling everything, but if needs arose, they held loosely to their possessions. There were some upper class and middle class people who came to believe the gospel and they used their resources for the mission of the gospel. They, they were giving away stuff in order to give to others and not expecting anything in return. Let me say this real quick. If you're going to do something for somebody, don't hold it over their head. If you do something for somebody, do it from your heart. But don't do it so that you can use it as a cloud to hold over somebody's head later on. I'm going to stop there because I don't want to get in your family business. <laughs> they brought the resources and laid it at the apostles' feet just as a sign of submission to the leadership there for the, for the simple fact also that they wanted to make sure the resources were distributed rightly to those who had needs. And this is evidence of their commitment, not just to each other, but their commitment to God. When we see Acts chapter 4, we're seeing that they are committed to God in a way because they are fulfilling something that they would have known about the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 15 verse 4. When, when, when God said to them, there will be no poor among you. However, because the Lord is certain to bless you in the land, the Lord your God has given you to possess as an inheritance. They were called as a body of people to ensure that there was no poor people among them. They took God's standards seriously enough to address the needs of those within the church. And their pursuit of unity and care for one another is demonstrated by their voluntarily pooling resources together to help those that were in need. Now, here's the caveat. Sometimes people don't know that a need arises because people are too prideful to speak up. But if you are a member of a church, you're a part of Christ's body, and you genuinely need something, not want, need, 
And you should not be so prideful that you suffer and struggle in silence. On the flip side of this, if you've been saved by grace through faith, that you have a responsibility, a call, that if you know that someone else is in need, that you step up to the plate and help if you can. And if you can't by yourself, you ought to call other Christians and say, hey, I heard so-and-so is struggling. What can we do together? Can we rally the troops? This is our responsibility as believers. Here is why. When God saw us in desperate need, he came and just got to work on our behalf. And so our giving, our helping, our sharing with those in need is our responsibility. It is our calling. It is our response to God coming to take care of our deepest needs, which was salvation. And they are not just preaching the gospel. They're not just studying the word together. They are making sure that everyone has access to everyday needs. It is both mission and mutual care happening at the same time. You know what I think they're doing? Shameless plug. I think they're growing, they're sharing, and they're serving. This is what this looks like. This is what it looks like to grow to share and to serve. This is what it looks like. This is a demonstration of not just love for God, but love for God and love for neighbors. What if all the churches decided to take care of each other within the local church? Nobody would have any needs because we would have each other's backs. And so communities are often built on individuals that are willing to take the lead and show what servant leadership looks like. And in this text, it gives us an example. If you look at verse, verses 36 through 37, it brings to our attention a brother by the name of Joseph, who they call Barnabas. And Barnabas is in the local church community. He is a member. He becomes a prominent figure later on in the gospel narrative. But Barnabas is wealthy because it mentions where Barnabas is from. Barnabas is from Cyprus. Barnabas not only Cyprus, which is a wealthy area, but Barnabas is also a Levite. And Levites were typically wealthy, and Levites owned land. They were very well-educated people. So here you have a wealthy man, an educated man, a man with means and resources right in the local body of believers. And it tells us not just Barnabas' real name, which is Joseph, but they, he has a nickname, which is Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And Barnabas' role in the church expands as time moves forward. He's always seemingly bringing about encouragement or consolation to people. He is absolutely a peacemaker in the church. He is the one that befriended a guy named Saul as he's hurling insults to Christians. The guy Saul has an encounter with God on the Damascus road, and then he becomes a Christian. God calls him to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, and the church is afraid of him because they remember his past. But he has an advocate named Barnabas, and Barnabas goes and tells the church, no, you can trust this guy. He's all right. Barnabas is a peacemaker. Barnabas is a peacemaker. He becomes Paul's traveling uh, companion in the ministry, but he's not just an encourager with his words. He lets his word be followed by actions. He's a servant leader. And Barnabas is an example of a new believer 
that lives in Christian community and is generous and holds loosely to his possessions. They did not force Barnabas to give up or sell his possessions, but he and others voluntarily relinquished possessions for the sake of others' needs being met. And God and Barnabas serves as an illustration that although it is hard for the rich to be saved, with God all things are possible. Barnabas is the opposite of the rich young ruler that Jesus told to sell all his possessions and give it to the poor. The rich young ruler walked away sad, but Barnabas, he is a true father because he is willing to forsake something so that he can enter into the kingdom of God. Barnabas is like Joseph of Arimathea who risked his reputation and life to follow Jesus. He's like Zacchaeus who surrendered much of his wealth. Barnabas proved although it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter into kingdom, with God all things are possible. He is a demonstration of the spirit at work in the life of a believer that contributes and sacrifices for the needs of the group. This is what commitment to community actually look like. This is what Christian growth, Christian sharing, and Christian serving looks like. This is what it looks like to follow the attitude and example of Jesus, where Philippians tells us, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God a thing to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, and when he had come as a man, it shows a humility and the willingness to get down and come where people are to meet their needs. So you're asking me, well, how does this work? Here's the factor, the X factor, the game changer on how we all can have a commitment to community. There is something that looms large in Acts chapter 2, actually Acts chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4, something that looms large. How are people that come from all walks of life and different interests, ages, socioeconomic backgrounds, different races, living among each other, eating with each other, praying together, and selflessly sharing with one another. The only way that could happen and that the people could thrive and enjoy favor is through the work of the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to do community together. We come as filled people. We must be a spirit-filled church if we are going to do life together. We cannot do it without the Spirit of God. It is not easy. Dare I say it will be uncomfortable. It will take time. It will take forgiveness. It will take patience. It will take long-suffering. But it will be worth it. Paul writes in the letter to Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 4, in verse 3, verses 2 through 6 actually, he says, always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Now, I want to say this. Some stuff is, all things are forgivable, but some things are inexcusable. The aim is to keep the unity, so you do whatever it takes to keep that. But here's what he says, verse 3. Make every effort. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit. We have to examine our hearts. God, why do I feel this way about this? God, why am I offended about this? 
God, why am I like kind of pushing away from the church about this? God, are, are these just my feelings or is this reality? Is this the way I am perceiving things or is it the way it is? Did they really mean harm when they said this to me? God, is this thing that deep and that serious? God, am I really being selfish in this moment because I'm offended because they won't let me do what I think I should be doing? Holy Spirit, check my heart. Am, 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 am I serving with the right posture? Am I bringing the right posture to the community in which I'm called to be in? God, God if I have some feelings inside, Lord, Help me to discern if these are from you. God, are my motives completely pure? God, am I trying to, am I taking my corporate, uh, my corporate pursuit and bringing it to the church, trying to get somewhere? Am I trying to get, get out my own thing and, and, and eventually platform and do my own thing? All right, am I here as a necessary part of the body to serve other people? We, we have to ask ourselves these questions because the moment we exalt ourselves above the group, we become a threat to the group. We threaten the peace, the purity of the church. We threaten the unity of the church when our own interest replaces the interest of others. Th this is a reality that we have to come to the table with a willingness to serve other people. We look at Ephesians 4. Verse 4, it says, For there is one body and one spirit, just as you've been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all, in all, living through all. The Holy Spirit is the adhesive that holds the Christian community together. And ultimately, what we see in Acts chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 4 is we see an answer to prayer. Whose prayer do we see an answer to? We see an answered prayer that God answers on behalf of his son Jesus. One thing I want to show you, John 17, verse 11, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, here's what we see. Jesus says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by your name that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. And our oneness, our unity, not uniformity because we're all different, but our oneness, our unity, is to mirror the unity of Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. We demonstrate that love relationship. And here's what I'll close with. Jesus says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples by the way you love one another. I love Jesus 
and I love the church. We must be a spirit-filled people, a prayerful people, a united people. If we are going to demonstrate a commitment to community, and every person is called by God to be grafted into that community every chance we get, it is not optional. It is who we who we are. So, my prayer is that the church would realize who we are and live in to what we've been called to. We're not divided over issues of social things and political things. That, that, that doesn't take precedence over our allegiance to the kingdom and to each other. God has called us to have a commitment to community. Let us pray. Father, we thank you today. We hope you were blessed by the message today and would love to hear about how God is using this ministry in your life. You can connect with us online at outpouringorlando.com to share your story, request prayer, give financial support, or learn more about our ministry. We'd love to see you at one of our Sunday services if you're ever in the Orlando area. Thanks again for joining us today. Have a wonderful week.